Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. And you can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. Now, I am all on my lonesome here in the studio today. It's just me, but I am here to bring you a very special episode of Policy Forum Pod featuring a terrific interview that I think you're going to really enjoy. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, a quick reminder that we would love to have you on board for our Facebook podcast gang. We've created this little creative space for you, our listeners, to chat to one another, to chat to the presenters, to share your ideas with the team. You can find us on Facebook, just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. And also some pod news. This week, you may have noticed that we launched a brand new podcast looking at all of the issues, policies, politics, and personalities of the Australian election. It's called Democracy Sausage, because who doesn't love a democracy sausage? And it's hosted by Mark Kenny of the Australian Studies Institute at ANU. And this week on the Democracy Sausage podcast, I just love saying that, Mark chats to Shirley Leach, Andrew Hughes, and Bob McMullen about the first week of campaigning. It covers everything from health policy commitments to how the parties are using social media to target voters. It is a great listen, and it'll be out early every week. We'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Today on the podcast, we are bringing you a very special interview that was recorded last week uh, with Professor Sharon Bessel talking to Professor Nyla Kabir about gender and poverty. Sharon, as you will know, is a professor here at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead on the Individual Deprivation Measure Project, and she's also editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. Nyla Kabir is a professor of gender and development at the London School of Economics. She's done advisory work for the governments of India, Bangladesh, and Gambia, and a huge range of international and bilateral organizations, including the World Bank, UNDP, and Oxfam. Sharon and Nyla talk about a broad range of issues from how poverty affects women in particular, the impact of poverty on domestic violence, to the link between inequality and discrimination, and why the UN Sustainable Development Goals are such an important step towards gender equality. Nyla was here at Crawford School to give a talk on women's livelihoods that was sponsored by the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. We'll get to that in a second, but first a quick reminder to our listeners, please do get in contact with us. Let us know your thoughts about the podcast today. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum. Send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net, or as I said, Join the Facebook podcast gang with Policy Forum Pod on that platform. And stick around after the main interview because I'll be back then. But for now, let's hear what Nyla had to say to Sharon.
Today we'd like to look at the gendered nature of poverty, why poverty affects women in different ways than men, and what the role of the UN Sustainable Development Goals can play in achieving gender equality. And to talk through some of these issues, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Naila Kabir to the podcast. Naila, welcome. Thank you. Nala, I must say that I don't think I have taught a course over the past 20 years where you haven't appeared on my reading list. So I know all of my students are going to be listening to this discussion that we're about to have with great interest. I wanted to go back to begin our conversation to a a comment that you made in one of your early works, in Reversed Realities, which was published way back in 1994. You wrote in the preface to that book, the denial of voice and agency to the unofficial actors of development takes a particularly intense form when it comes to women. And you went on to say that development has been about men, by men and for men. 25 years on, how much has that situation changed? I think it has changed quite a lot. Um, I think the talk has definitely changed. Uh, We certainly see um, much more attention. It's almost, uh, you know, the larger development agencies now make it um, almost compulsory for any of the projects that they get involved with to take some kind of account of gender differentials and so on, take account of women. Um, I mean, it has a downside, obviously, because very often they seem to be playing on some of the responsibilities that women have as a vehicle for achieving their own goals, uh, because they've understood that there's a lot of instrumental value in targeting women to, you know, uh, achieve some of their goals. But I couldn't, you could no longer say that they're invisible. You know, you have to uh, acknowledge that at the level of policy, the level of projects, there's far more attention paid to women than... I could never write that sentence now. Which I think does indicate some significant progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So much of your work is focused on the gendered nature of poverty and also gender-based inequality. And you've described poverty as being both a state and a process. How does seeing poverty in this way help us to understand and then respond to poverty, the poverty of both women and men? Um, Poverty as state draws our attention to some of the differentials in the key dimensions that we see as indicative of of deprivation. So poverty as state is like a snapshot, and we see and we ask questions about things that are very crucial to human well-being, food, water, education, health, nutrition, all of those things. So poverty as state is like freezing these inequalities at a particular moment of time and appreciating the fact that there are major inequalities and those persist. Um, poverty's process is trying to understand how we get, how we got there. Um, why, what are the, the larger forces and the immediate factors that lead to these inequalities between men and women? Um, you know, what are the mechanisms through which gender differentials and inequalities are reproduced over time? So it's, it's a much more dynamic approach, and it helps us to understand causalities. One of the things that you've written quite a lot about in your work is the violence that's faced by the poor. Mm-hmm. And you've made the point that while violence against the poor is often class-based, it's mediated by gender. Mm-hmm. How do poverty, violence, and patriarchy intersect? 
yes, that that point that uh, both men and women from uh, subordinate groups, you know, from from the lowest uh, sections of the lowest ranks of the hierarchies of society, are very often at the mercy of people who are more powerful than them. Um, so men may face, you know, forms of dispossession, forms of uh, just physical violence, you know, because they have far less protection. But women face that as well from external actors, powerful actors, often has a sexual dimension to it. So poorer women are often at the receiving end of various kinds of sexual violence, rape and harassment. But of course, in addition, for poor men, for men from low-income households who are unable to live up to the sort of hegemonic models of masculinity of the male breadwinner, often they take their frustrations out on the people who are somewhat less powerful than them. So I think I, when I started to look at this in the context of Bangladesh and India, you find that levels of violence often increase in situations of extreme crisis, of extreme, you know, of seasonal hunger. So it's, a, I think, you know, I've heard women say that, you know, he comes home and he hasn't had any work all day and I tell him the children are crying and so he turns around and beats us. You know, and I think that's not a fault of his character as such. It's just the frustrations of being unable to live up to this model and taking it out on whoever's weaker than you. So when we think about those interconnections mm -hmm. between the pressures that the poor people, both women and men, face every day and the violence that they're subjected to, where do we begin in terms of addressing particularly violence against women in their homes? So I think this is rightly often seen as such an acute issue that if you're not safe in your home, then you are incredibly vulnerable. So where do we begin addressing domestic violence, family-based violence, intimate partner violence in that when we understand that broader context? I think one has to have a multi-stranded approach. You know, I don't think there is any one single thing one can do to bring violence down. Um, I believe that giving women options that would increase their negotiating power within the household so that they're not entirely dependent is one important way forward. A lot of women put up with abusive relationships because they have nowhere else to go. So, you know, things like secure housing, land rights, decent work, all of those things give you a fallback option. But I think also you need to change the laws. I think the state has, even imperfect states and failings, well, not failings, but, you know, states that are not particularly uh, admirable in many ways still carry a lot of weight in society. And I think if states make a very clear take a stand on the issue of the unacceptability of domestic violence, pass laws to that effect, and then take the trouble of enforcing those laws, train the police, train the judges. So it's a kind of holistic approach, I think, um, because its roots, the roots of domestic violence, are not in the character of individual men. They are a reflection of both power and class, you know, gender and class dynamics. So I think one has to address it from a number of different uh, ways. But I think above all, questioning the, what is the word, you know, just the taken for grantedness of it, you know, that, you know, my husband beats me and that's fine, or I beat my wife and that's fine. You know, I think that has been in many societies is simply taken for granted. It's not questioned. So I think 
bringing that to the surface and starting to find ways of questioning it is very important. Actually, uh, at this conference that I've just been at, uh, we had a panel on masculinity and uh, someone told me that one of the men on that panel is very active. I, I can't remember where he comes from, but he may come from East Africa. Um, very active on this issue. And when he goes to public officials and talks about domestic violence, husbands beating their wives, and they say, well, that's acceptable. He then turns the question around and says, is it acceptable to beat your mother? You know, is it So it's an interesting way of there's something about the conjugal relationship, the marital relationship, that because masculinity is much more at stake in those relationships, that they're somewhat different from other forms of gender relationships within the family. And I think, again, questioning the naturalness and the givenness of this is a very important step. Leila, you, you mentioned the conference that you've been here in Australia um, to be part of. Of course, that was a conference looking at um, issues around uh, women in agriculture. It was sponsored by, um, by ACR, held at the University of Canberra, and it had participants from, from around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 45 countries. Which is very impressive. Mm-hmm. That, that comment that, that man made from, from East Africa about challenging the the taken for grantedness of violence. Mm-hmm. How widespread is that attitude amongst men in South Asia, where you've done so much of your work, um, in parts of Africa, or indeed anywhere in the world where we see high rates of violence against women? Uh, the attitude that is acceptable to be violent? The, the attitude that it's acceptable, but also the attitude of some men mm. that we need to challenge this, that actually men need to stand up. How widespread do you think... Not um, widespread enough. Men. <laughs> Not widespread enough. I think, um, you know, there are these uh, individuals, you know, cases, organizations, but you can almost count them on the fingers of your hand. You know, the number of men standing up uh, to the issue of violence, because it does bring them into confrontation with other men and in ways that might put their own masculinity under question, you know, why you why you were... Uh, questioning this male privilege. So I'm very glad to see it's there. And, you know, we had some excellent men on the panel. Uh, But I would like to see many more men because we're not going to get rid of this problem, obviously, without it becoming a widespread change in norms and attitudes. Naila, one of the challenges in addressing poverty for both women and men, for boys and girls is the absence of sex disaggregated data, you know, data that are broken down so that we can actually see the difference between women and men. And so often poverty data are collected at the level of the household, and so we really don't know what's going on within that household. But, of course, assumptions abound about sharing, about distribu- distribution. I've been working on a new and gender-sensitive approach to measuring Mm -hmm. poverty for the past decade and with colleagues have developed the individual deprivation measure, which assesses poverty across 15 dimensions at the individual level. And what astounds me is that this is one of the first attempts to do this. But recently we have seen a good deal of debate and a recognition that we do need to be measuring poverty at the level of the individual. But what has consistently puzzled me is why, until very recently, there has been so limited attention in the mainstream 
to the need for individual level data. So why is it, do you think, in 2019 that we still have so little sex disaggregated data about poverty? You know, I think it's like the weight of history that these massive official household surveys were designed, you know, many years ago. And they just continue to reproduce themselves. And measuring the household is an easy way out. You know, you just have to talk to one person and they report on everybody and what their views are. To take on gender disaggregated or sex disaggregated data requires you to go the additional mile. It requires you to take much more effort and design your surveys in such a way that you are now asking questions about individuals. Uh, and I think people just feel like... Uh, you know, what's the returns on that? You know, do we really need to? And we do have data on, you know, health and nutrition. There's certain um, well-known well-being indicators. They don't tell us enough about the the depth of differentials within the household. So I think um, we're really dealing with this institutional inertia. Um, I think, you know, your index, your efforts to uh, to develop quite a complicated but participatory approach. I think, you know, one of the problems for me is that statisticians or certain kinds of policy officials always want something they call representative data. And that means huge, you know, large-scale surveys. You can get quite a lot of very valuable information by doing smaller-scale efforts in different parts of a a society, you know, just uh, uh, shorter interviews, they add up and they will tell you about the variation and they will tell you enough about the variation across the context of a country for it to be reasonably representative and a far more accurate depiction of how poverty is playing out. Alongside your, your work on poverty, um, you've also worked a great deal on inequality and of course those those two issues are very closely related. And today we see a great deal of attention paid to inequality. Not surprising, perhaps given the massive concentration of wealth amongst a tiny proportion of the global population. When you've written about inequality, you've written about both vertical and horizontal inequalities. What does that mean? And why does it matter for women in particular? Well, vertical inequalities is the classic way in which inequality has been measured, which is to look at the distribution of uh, indicators of, of uh, wealth, assets, income, to look at that distribution across a population. And so that tells you who is poor and who is rich. But it doesn't tell you that within these different income strata, you know, different sections of the population, are people evenly divided you know, by identity, are they evenly divided amongst the rich and the poor? Or do we find certain kinds of identities overrepresented among the wealthy, let us say white men, <laughs> and certain kinds of identities overrepresented in the lower income uh, deciles, let us say indigenous, low caste men and women. And gender, of course, is critical in here because one of the things I think about gender is it cuts across, the inequalities cut across the income distribution. And you will find, people are not sympathetic, but you will find inequalities in the higher end of the income distribution. Um, so we have Hollywood actresses complaining about being paid far less 
even if they're paid in millions, than their male co-stars. You may not be sympathetic, but it's a part of the same system. But equally, you will find at the lower end, uh, gender inequality exists there as well. And it will often be intensified by the fact that you are in a situation of deprivation, the fact that you're likely to be from a racial minority or an ethnic minority. You know, so there's a concentration of disadvantage at the bottom, which reflects the intersection of income deprivation and discriminated identities. And how do those patterns of inequality reproduce themselves? How does it keep on happening By that the, the same people are concentrated at yeah. the bottom? And indeed, the same people are concentrated at the top. Yeah. I think we don't look enough at the people at the top. You know, we're much more accustomed to acknowledging that there are certain groups of people overrepresented at the bottom. But the flip side of that is, of course, there are certain groups of people represented at the top. And I think it keeps on happening Again, it's the way uh, I talked earlier about institutional inertia. You know, it's the way the systems just have been set up to reproduce inequality and they do it without any effort on anyone's part. It's set up in a way that is loaded. You know, your ability to get yourself out of a situation, um, it's very hard for you. You you never earn enough. You face discrimination, any attempt to get a job. You know, so it's set up against you. But I also think that it's set up against you because you have no voice. The people at the bottom have no say in making the rules of the game. And so the rules of the game are now loaded against them. And until and unless they have voice or someone at the top speaks on their behalf, why would it change? It's in the interest of powerful people to keep the system intact. Maybe throw a few crumbs now and again to make sure you don't have a revolution of any kind, but enough to, um, you know, just hold on to what they have. Uh, and so I, I, I think I saw a quote recently that the only way that the dispossessed in history have been able to claim their rights as citizens is not through individual efforts, it's through collective action. But Getting that collective action to happen is extraordinarily difficult, particularly these days, you know, with precarious work, dispersion of people, isolation of people. And then inequality is actually uh, taking the form of divisions amongst those at the bottom rather than people uniting against people at the top. Leila, I wanted to turn our conversation towards the Sustainable Development Goals, which have variously been hailed as a global consensus for good to address exactly the kinds of challenges mm -hmm. we've been talking about. They've been criticised as little more than a, a wish list and perhaps a, a, not a very coherent wish list at that. You were deeply involved in debates around the Millennium Development yeah. Goals that came before the SDGs. And in 2005, you, you wrote about Millennium Development Goal 3, which aimed to achieve gender equality. And you argued at the time that the targets and the indicators that were associated with that goal – targets that focused on education, getting girls into school, on employment, getting women into the workforce, were not really fit for achieving the purpose of gender equality and empowering women. Does the SDG on gender equality and women's empowerment fare any better in terms of how it's framed and how it tries to measure progress? No, I think they're a vast improvement. 
And one of the reasons I think they are a vast improvement is that, as you recall, the MDGs were agreed by a group of UN bureaucrats sitting in a basement somewhere. And I believe the environmental goal only got onto the MDGs because someone came out and bumped into the person head of an environment in the UN. And they- Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Oh, we must remember our environment. So it was very incoherent. You know, the use of the percentage of women in national parliaments as an indicator of tackling absolute poverty seems completely, you know, misjudged. When I look at the SDGs, I recall that civil society mobilized and the UN opened up channels for conversation and dialogue. So they had these massive surveys and allowed people online and in country to talk about what their priorities were. So there was a much greater deal of participation and engagement with the SDGs. And I think the feminist voice was more organized. They were missing for the MDGs. And if you look at SDG 5, I think it touches on many of the things that feminists have been fighting for, you know, the issue of domestic violence, unpaid work, and so on. So I think there's a, it's a much more coherent framework. Of course, it's a wish list. Um, you know, we have a trade-off between going for short, sharp, focused goals and indicators and then managing to leave out a lot of things. Or we have the option of taking something much longer, which then, I guess, leaves it up to countries to decide what they're going to prioritize. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the SDG 5 is much more in keeping with feminist thinking around what are key issues. Uh, getting unpaid work onto the agenda was a huge um, victory. And then we do see uh, attention to gender issues on the other many of the other goals as well. I think I was particularly pleased about, I think it's goal 10, the SDG 10 about inequalities um, and about not just income inequality, but also adding uh, that it it should address socioeconomic inequalities as well of various kinds. And this whole slogan of leave no one behind opens up the possibility for different advocacy groups, activist groups to push for, you know, those who are most likely to get left behind. So I think in many ways, one can be very cynical and, you know, quite rightly so. On the other hand, you know, if you think of the politics of accountability, when states sign up to these kinds of goals, then it is up to civil society where it can mobilize to hold them accountable and say you have signed up to, you know, taking questions of decent work seriously and environment seriously and now we need so it's trying to interpret the md uh, the sdgs as a a force for progress you know if you interpret it in that way rather than pour cold water on it you know you then you've killed it from the start but if you try and interpret it in a way that we're going to take you seriously you know this is what you've said and you've said it in a public place <laughs> you've signed a document I think uh, it's it's a more positive way to go forward. 
that language of, of leave no one behind um, and the language of gender equality appears in a number of goals. You know, it's there importantly in goal 10 on inequalities. It's also there in goal one, <laughs> um, the first goal, which focuses on reducing poverty. Do you think that goal one on poverty provides a new pathway for addressing poverty? And does that language of reducing poverty in all its forms for men, women and children, the language that's used in that goal, does that help us in moving forward in our efforts to really do something significant about the gendered nature of poverty? You know, in as much as words matter, um, spelling these things out is uh, a huge improvement on the past. And spelling out that it's about men, women and children, uh, and then specifying under the other goals what is needed to address the poverty of men, women, and children is important. And I quite like the fact that this is bringing together a concern with absolute poverty with a concern with inequality. So we've always been concerned with absolute poverty, and that continues to exist. It's supposed to have gone down, but I think the the markers or the, the, the base is so low for judging poverty that, you know, I don't think we can be very um, complacent about the fact that absolute poverty seems to have gone down. And we also know that a lot of that decline was because of China and India and the big, big populous countries. So I think having a, a focus on, on poverty is still important because it focuses our attention not just to people at the bottom of the, in, the inequality distribution, but the people who have benefited least from um, growth, development, and all these other efforts to make a difference. I think you made that important point that language can matter, and it sometimes matters. And I find it very intriguing that while the SDGs talk about women and men, and so we're starting to get that recognition of gender differences, children are often still spoken about in an ungendered way. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Mm. Well, it wouldn't have hurt to talk about men, women, boys and girls, you know, and I often see that framing. And it just suggests that the that the children's lobby were not influential enough, or rather they were influential, but in a, a gender-blind way, that perhaps feminists are not active enough around the issue of children uh, sufficiently. It's like youth, you know, I hear youth and you see young men. And actually, youth are young men and young women. So somehow, we've got to men and women. But the age, um, the life course dimensions, and if you look at the elderly as well, we need gender disaggregated attention to poverty amongst the elderly. So I don't know how they could have framed it. They could have framed it better. And, you know, these words matter they matter in the UN perhaps and more than anywhere else. Because I remember being at a meeting where I was trying to put forward some ideas around food security. And every person, every agency that was represented in the room wanted their word to be in there. You know, so refugees, rehabilitation, humanitarian. Because if you don't have those words there, those constituencies don't have a say. So I think in the UN, having attention to girls and boys and young men and young women, it sounds pedantic or it sounds, you know, overkill. But actually, I think it it's a forum in which these things are very important. Leila, several of the SDGs refer to social protection 
And of course, conditional cash transfers have become the darling of social protection strategies. You know, the idea that the poor are given a cash benefit, but that there are conditions attached. And those conditions are often around sending children to school, um, ensuring the children have health checks. So very much attached to the development of children, but perhaps the development of future human capital. And those conditional cash transfers are also often framed as promoting women's empowerment or promoting gender equality, as well as addressing poverty. Do conditional cash transfers fulfil their promise to women, not only in terms of poverty, but in terms of empowerment and equality? I think the consensus of the studies that I've seen and who, that have you know, done the empirical investigation of what the impacts of these conditional crash transfers are, in general, say they um, reinforce women's traditional roles as mothers. You know, they're a very maternalistic agenda. Uh, they very often add to the demands made on women. And they're based on a lack of trust that you know, you can rely on mothers anyway, uh, but parents to do the best they can for their children. Um, and we also know that unconditional cash transfers have had similar effects. So the conditionality, I, I will say, is partly political in the sense that it helps to sell the cash transfer. I know in Brazil, they tried to drop the conditionality and the population said, oh, there's going to be a handout. So conditionality is a way of uh, you know, speaking the language of co-responsibility. The state will give you this transfer and you in turn must, you know, abide by these conditions. But, of course, the state doesn't deliver on its promise, you know. So you may want the children to go to school, but the teachers may not be there. The doctors may not be in the clinic. You may not have an expansion of services in education and health that meets the increased demand that having these trans cash transfers will lead to. So there's, a, again, a, a mismatch. Uh, so on the whole, I mean, I tend to also see some <coughs> positive sides uh, in the sense that there is evidence, say, from uh, Mexico, which has one of the oldest of these CC conditional cash transfers, that women were able to use some of the transfers to invest in livestock, which was under their own control. And in other parts of, um, of the world, we've seen that because this is handed to women, they have been able to use it in ways that do not necessarily you know, conform to the conditionalities, but which gives them some degree of, uh, of control, of, of assets under their own control. But on the whole, I think the, the discourse of maternal responsibility is probably not a helpful one. I think if we could build fatherhood into that a bit more, it would have been a more balanced approach. In some of the, the global discussions around social protection and the most appropriate course to take, we have conditional cash transfers as one option and also debates and discussions around the potential of universal basic income. And this is a, an issue that we've discussed on several occasions here on the podcast. What are your views on universal basic income as a form of social protection? I have very mixed views about it. Um, on the one hand, obviously, I like the idea that every single person is entitled to some amount of money, uh, which is at their disposal and is unconditional and is an acknowledgement of their membership of a society, their citizenship. Um, on the other hand, and I know the supporters of it deny it or think it's not a problem, 
I would not like it to be seen as a replacement for universal basic services. And for me, the most important thing is having universal access to basic services in health, education, and so on. And if you somehow think that this income is going to lead to um, generate demand and therefore bring forth the supply, it's uh, it, the amounts are too small. So my own preference, though I don't know how many people are arguing for it, is universal basic services. That everyone, I love the National Health Service as it was. Um, I love um, people having, all children having access to initially primary and then secondary schools. I would like them to get free education right to university level. Uh, and I think that's more important for me. The um, the gendered nature of services is something that's that's often discussed. What's often less discussed is the importance of infrastructure. And this is something that the SDGs do address, um, but very rarely do we see a gendered lens apply to debates around infrastructure. Very recently, um, last month, the UN Commission on the Status of Women focused on social protection and infrastructure and in the final communique referred to the importance of infrastructure to gender equality. How significant do you think this perhaps very slow but noticeable shift towards thinking about infrastructure is? You know, some of us have been arguing about infrastructure for a very long time. And we've been arguing for infrastructure such as roads, um, transportation, um, electricity, piped water, you know, clean water or uh, easier access to water. Um, all of these things have been, and I think one reason, my view is one reason that it has been somehow sidelined is that within the West, uh, a lot of the focus, a lot of the language has been about the care economy. And within the West, the care economy is seen as cooking, cleaning, and looking after children or elderly or disabled people. Whereas in the global South, we have to extend the work, what the issue of unpaid work is about. It's about growing vegetables for the family. It's about collecting fuel and water. It's about raising livestock, perhaps not for markets, but for subsistence. So there's a whole uh, huge component of unpaid work that tends to get made invisible in the language of care. And so the language of care draws our attention to maternity leave, paternity leave, childcare, affordable creches, and so on. Whereas I think infrastructure, utilities, um, you know, clean, clean um, you know, having woodlots near your home, um, all of those things address this other aspect of women's unpaid work, which is this productive rather than reproductive aspect. So I, for one, am very clear that it's a, it's a huge step forward, and it's a huge step forward in acknowledging the differences of what unpaid work means in, industri in industrialized countries compared to poorer, less monetized economies. Then while the, the sustainable development goals frame women's empowerment quite broadly you know, in terms of the range of issues we've been discussing. You've noted that in the current global discourse, women's empowerment has really become women's economic empowerment. How concerned should we be about this slippage of language from women's empowerment to women's economic empowerment? 
it's a little, I have a little bee in my bonnet about it. <coughs> and the reason is, um, I think it narrows uh, both the meaning of empowerment, obviously, but also the processes that lie behind empowerment. So I've always been a great believer in, uh, you know, material dimensions of subordination. And I've always wanted to see, uh, you know, access to land, assets, property, work, all these opportunities, which come under an economic rubric. But the reason that I feel it's too narrow is first, I'm a little suspicious of the motivations for that slippage, you know, for that conflation. And I think it's about allowing major policymakers to focus on growth and markets. Uh, and that's what, you know, and, and they've understood that uh, women's labor force participation leads to growth and so on. So I'm a little, you know, concerned that we lose sight of the issues of power and subordination. And the focus is on let's get women into the labor market, you know, let's get women into micro enterprise and so on. So that's one concern I have, uh, that it, it allows them to shift their gaze from the broader agenda to one that suits the agenda they have. And I think the second one is a conceptual one. And it I often see economic empowerment defined in ways that it's all about the economic. And so it's about economic decision-making. You know, it's about economic assets. Whereas my own research says that, you know, different uh, progress on different dimensions of subordination are not contained within that dimension. So... Empowering women in the market domain can have spillover effects in other aspects of their lives. Um, you know, money is not just about um, getting out of poverty. It's also a pathway to being able to help yourself, being able to help your parents, being able to uh, have some sort of voice, you know, all of those other things. So I worry that narrowing it to economic empowerment will narrow our gaze to only changes that have an economic dimension. So I think um, one of the things I've been saying is I prefer, and of course it's three more words, but I prefer talking about economic pathways to empowerment in the way that I would talk about political pathways to empowerment. You know, and people who work in the political domain will focus on that, but they will know that empowering women politically doesn't stop at politics. It will have spillover effects on, on economics voice and um, and their standing in society. Similarly, I think empowering women in the economic domain will have spillover effects on voice agency in other areas of their lives and in their communities. Finally, Naila, if, if you had a magic wand with only one wish, what do you think would be this or is the most, the single most important issue for the global development agenda if we are to achieve women's equality and to see women empowered by 2030, the, the period of, of the Sustainable Development Goals? I think, you know, it's to have to focus on one issue is would go against, fundamentally against how I look at things. But I guess the issue of bodily integrity, the issue of respect women's control over their own bodies and for others to respect women's bodies, you know, and their control. So I would want to see the whole area of reproductive sexual rights taken seriously, violence against women, sexual harassment. 
that is a very important way in which women continue to be silenced, you know, through violence, through denial of reproductive choices. So I suppose it's, it's still quite broad, but I think accepting the boundaries that women have, all of us have around our own bodies, is something that, and the control that we need to exercise over them, I think is perhaps a, a very important, perhaps one of the most important. Professor Naila Kabir, it has been an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your insights and your wisdom. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back and thanks once again to Sharon Bessel and Professor Nyla Kabir there. I thought that was a fascinating interview, covered a really broad range of crucial and important topics. Uh, a very good listen. What did you think, listeners? Get in contact with us. Let us know your thoughts, your comments, what questions it raised for you. You can reach us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. You can drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net if you want to use email or join the Facebook podcast gang where we are, Policy Forum Pod. Now, if you want to find out more about how gender impacts on poverty, you might want to check out our Master of Public Policy in Global Development Policy degree here at Crawford School. You can find it at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, normally at the end of each week's podcast, we have a discussion about some of the comments and questions that we've received, uh, both on previous podcasts and on posts that we put up on our website, policyforum.net. But there's just me in the studio here, and a discussion with just me doesn't sound like a great idea. So instead, what I'm going to do is focus on a couple of your suggestions that you have made for future podcasts that we might want to do. And we are really keen to get your thoughts on the topics that you'd like to see us covered on Policy Forum pod here. We love hearing your ideas, and so many great ones too. If you want to let us know of a podcast you think we should do, jump onto the Facebook podcast group. That's the best way to let us know. Uh, And in fact, that's exactly what Adisha, Adisha and Eleanor Ashton have done. And I just want to read out their suggestions for future podcasts. So Adisha, hello Adisha, wrote... uh, would be interested in how the advancement of technology might affect or disrupt the policy sphere. And Eleanor, hello Eleanor, said the role of communications in public policy successes and failures. I love both of those ideas. I've got to say, I think that the advancement of technology is a is a fascinating area for the podcast to focus on. And as a comms person, the idea of doing something which is around the role of communications in public policy and how it can both contribute to the effective communications of public policy or how it can go terribly, terribly wrong and uh, and make things worse sounds like a great topic for a pod. So many thanks to both of you for uh, those ideas there. And what do you think of those ideas, listeners? Have you got other ideas of your own for podcasts? podcasts that we might want to do. We're really keen to get your thoughts. Now, while we're on the topic of the Facebook podcast gang, I want to say hello to a few of our new members. So hello to Dean Hewson, to Chevelle McKeough, Alexander Mengel, Catherine Allen, and Jennifer Davis. And apologies to any of you whose name I might have mangled there. But welcome to the pod gang. It's great to have you involved. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. 
will only take you 30 seconds or so. Just find that fifth star. It'll be a huge help to us in getting word out about this podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod and hopefully there'll be someone in the studio with me this time. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.